Okay, we start today, though, with the border restrictions extended for another month. That's the breaking news this morning. Have a listen to this here now. This is Justin Trudeau on why the border is remaining shut. We're still seeing cases uh, across the country, and we want to get them down. At the same time, uh, we also know we have to hit our targets of uh, 75% vaccinated with a first dose, uh, at least 20% vaccinated at the second dose uh, before we can start loosening things up. Because even a fully vaccinated individual uh, can pass on uh, COVID-19 to someone who is not vaccinated. Uh, and that means we have to really make sure that not only uh, people who are fully vaccinated can travel, but that the communities uh, to which they will return are not at risk. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Len Saunders. He's an immigration lawyer just across the border in Blaine, Washington. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Len. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm, go- I'm doing good. Thanks for doing this. What's your reaction to this announcement this morning? Well, my reaction was there's been no announcement on the American side. So, yes, the Prime Minister and Minister Blair have said that the Canadian border has been extended, this closure, for another 30 days. It's been crickets from the U.S. There's been nothing said stateside. And I think that shows a lot. I still am a firm believer that the American border is going to fully reopen next week. I really do. Well, you think it'll open like with, for one-way traffic, you mean? Absolutely. So here's what's happened in the past. The Americans have always announced the closure first. And what they do is, by law, they have to announce it in what's called the Federal Register. So in the past, they've announced it quietly in the Federal Register around the 15th or 16th of every month. It has not been posted online. And what's even more interesting is it's a federal holiday down here today because of this new Juneteenth holiday. So the Federal Mm -hmm. Register is closed today. It's obviously closed Sunday or Saturday and Sunday for the weekend. So unless the Americans publish this on Monday, the border coming south will fully reopen at midnight on Monday night. Ooh, ooh. Okay, well, we're keeping a close eye on that. Speaking to Len Saunders, immigration lawyer in Blaine, Washington, I'm going to throw the phone lines open right now. So if you've got any thoughts on the continuing restrictions at the Canada-U.S. border, phone me on this right now. I'd love to hear from you. How has this impacted you? Do you got property down there? You got relatives, business interests? Phone me and tell me about this border restrictions. How has it has affected you? Do you want to see the border reopened? Uh, would you prefer to see the restrictions remain in place? 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Len, I know you're hearing every day from clients and people are asking questions about this. Like, What is the number one concern or question that you get from people on this? Well, most Canadians, especially in the Lower Mainland, they just want to be able to come back to the U.S. to go to their cabin in Port Roberts or their cabin in Birch Bay or just come down here shopping or pick up their packages, which have been languishing at these mail places for a year and a half. So people just want some kind of idea of when they can make realistic plans for the summer or just for a quick day trip to the U.S. Yeah, I remember um, I rent. I once rented a, a mailbox in Blaine, Washington, because I wanted to order something that they didn't deliver to Canada, but they would only deliver to the United States. So I remember popping across the border to, to pick up the package in Blaine. It was very convenient. 
And man, oh man, you talk about busy business down there. I mean, there's people going in and out of these places, picking up packages all the time. I mean, they must be running out of storage room for these packages. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So so what's happened is a lot of them have stopped accepting packages because they have no more room. And they're open like one day a week for two hours because nobody's coming down to pick up their packages. Nobody can come south. Yeah, yeah. Okay, phone me on this now. The Canada-U.S. border restrictions, according to the federal government, extended for another month, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. What are you hearing, Len, in terms of vaccinations? Because we continue to hear that the plan going forward will be, okay, we'll let people cross if they've been double vaccinated. And we're seeing reports that the the Canadian government potentially developing a, a phone, a smartphone app that you could have on your phone that would show you've been double vaccinated to get across the border. Is that what you're expecting? Exactly. So coming into the U.S., driving, I don't think there's going to be any restrictions. They're just going to wave people through. Going north is going to be different. What's interesting is the Nexus program seems to be shut down on the Canadian side. So I have not seen the Nexus lane open going north for over a year. The American side is wide open. So my feeling is there's going to be some kind of new program for the next year or two where in order to use that fast pass system, you're going to have to have, you know, double vaccination and prove it. So there's obviously going to be some kind of restrictions going forward, even when the Canadian government partially reopens the border for probably another year or two. That's just my guess. Okay, let's go to the phone calls. Dan on the line in Surrey. Hi, Dan. Hi. Hi, go ahead. I, my question is, uh, what, I know it's a little off subject, but the AstraZeneca vaccine, I'm scheduled to get my second dose on Monday. And I know some places in the States are not recognizing the AstraZeneca. I don't know if your guest will be, can comment okay, on Okay, well, I think you've put your finger on something that a lot of people are wondering about. If you've got the AstraZeneca vaccine here in Canada, which is not approved for use in the United States, is that going to be acceptable to American authorities? I mean, we've already heard about, was it the Bruce Springsteen Broadway show has said that they won't let you in if, if all you've got is an AstraZeneca shot? Like, what are you hearing on that, Len, or your thoughts? Well, I think it's going to be specific on what event. So I went to a Mariners baseball game a couple of weekends ago and showed my double vaccination. I don't think they really cared what you know vaccination you had. You know, it's going to be kind of hit and miss on where you're going and what the requirements are for what kind of vaccination you've had. Did you were you required to show a double vaccination proof to get into the Mariners baseball game? No, actually, I wasn't, but certain sections, um, and a lot of them are the prime seats, they want you to show that. So they have a line where you, you, you go in and you get like a, like a wristband, and then you can go into that section, plus you get discounts of 20%. So I just showed my card, and it was easy. They just look at it, and, you know, thousands of people walk through that line and uh, show their proof. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, that's very interesting. So, you, like, some of those seats where it's, like, so there's some seats that are vaccinated only? Absolutely, and, and oh, they have wow. people making sure that you have the wristbands on before you go into those prime seats. Re- really, and those are the best seats, like right down the first baseline or what? Like wh- Absolutely, otherwise really? you're up in the rafters, socially oh, wow. distanced, like 10 seats away from everybody else. Oh, interesting, yeah. I mean, that's where I always love to sit, right on the first baseline. You know, so yeah, you gotta, absolutely. Yeah, so you got to be double vaccinated to get in there now. Wow. For the prime seats. For the prime seats. Okay, Um 
Speaking to uh, Len Saunders, immigration lawyer in Blaine, Washington, is your phone still ringing off the hook here? It sounds like this this pandemic has been good for business for you. Well, it's been great for business for a lot of couples who've been separated, which is, you know, it's crappy for them. It's great for me. But I feel like I'm a part-time travel agent because a lot of people have questions on going back and forth. And I still see, like, you know, there's still all these loopholes. If you go and sit in Peace Arch Park, it's a steady stream of Canadians getting dropped off every day by taxi cabs, by buses, by friends, walking north. It's it's amazing how many people are avoiding the hotel quarantine by just yeah. walking back through the Peace Arch. Okay, we continue to follow it very closely. Len, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk a little BC politics here now. The spring session of the provincial legislature is complete. MLAs heading back to their home constituencies now. It was another weird session of the legislature. COVID restrictions in place. Things expected to be a little closer to normal in the next session of the legislature. Let's talk to the leader of the opposition now. Shirley Bond is the six-term liberal MLA for Prince George. She is the interim leader of the BC Liberal Party. I'm pleased to welcome her back. Thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, my pleasure, Mike. Okay, what jumped out at you in this session? What was the highlight for you? Well, I think we continued to try to point out to British Columbians the, uh, the, the botching that this government has done on just about every program they have attempted to roll out. Uh, you know, if you look at the grant program for small and medium-sized businesses, we don't even have half the money out the door yet. They had to change it three times. We've seen a fiasco with the uh, cruise industry, with the Premier's lack of attention, and he basically dismissed every concern we raised in the legislature about that issue and so many others. So uh, I think it yeah. was an opportunity for us to raise those concerns. Right. The cruise ship one is one we followed here on the show as well. And at one point, the industry and Amer- the American politicians were basically pleading with Canada to let these cruise ships do what's known as a technical stop. So mm-hmm. our ports were closed to cruise ships. So they said, OK, fine. Our law says we have to stop at a foreign port. So just let us drop anchor for three hours and then nobody will get off the boat and then we'll just keep going. OK, just let us do that technical stop. Do you think they should have done that? I mean, Canada should have jumped all over that and B.C. too. Well, absolutely, that should have been considered. We're talking about an industry in British Columbia that is, uh, uh, you know, more than 20,000 jobs and and over $2 billion billion to the economy. It meant no people would get off the boat. And the premier was inaccurate in his answer about that. So, of course, they should have considered that. They didn't. Okay, speaking of the Premier and jobs, um, we've seen an increase in staffing levels in the Premier's office here. What are your concerns there? Well, we should be clear, in this year alone, the Premier took an almost 30% increase in his office budget. He has 103 people working in that office. And when you look at the total increase, Mike, since he became Premier, it's over 60% of an increase in his budget let, let wow. me put that. Uh, in, let me compare that, for example, to one of the ministries we think is absolutely essential at this time, and that's the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions. The Premier's office budget is bigger than the in total dollars uh, than the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, and we think that's uh, that's uh, inappropriate. And and he certainly should have given more thought to some of the other priorities that British Columbians have. Okay. Well, you had an exchange with him in the House this week on this point, and. He is saying that they had to hire more people because of the pandemic and a lot of the outreach that was going on around the province. Uh, 
Let me play one clip here for you of John Horgan on this point. Here he is talking about some of the staff members that were added to his office payroll. Have a listen. There's 10 new people there. They're not spin doctors, as they've been characterized. These are uh, government employees. They were internal uh, competitions uh, for these positions. They're not uh, appointed because of their uh, where they come from. They were uh, selected through uh, competition. Okay, so he says these are not like political hacks or spin doctors. These are professional staff that are doing good work for the people of B.C. So... Your thoughts? Well, I mean, uh, well, uh, uh, Premier Horgan had a range of excuses. He actually blamed the pandemic. He talked about the ambitious agenda. And he even uh, talked about the the fact that the spending was necessary to show the public that he was genuine about welcoming new ideas. So, you know, the bottom line is this. These are taxpayer dollars. We've seen a 63% increase in the Premier's office budget since he became Premier. And, and from our perspective, there are a lot of important priorities. For heaven's sakes, they were going to cancel the fruit and vegetable program. Uh, we had to, to convince them to do that. And they, they failed to support uh, legions across British Columbia. They still haven't dealt with the Army, Navy, and Air Force vets. So, you know, our view is it is about priorities. And this Premier uh, certainly should have uh, looked at some other considerations before increasing his budget by 30%. Okay, so if the Liberals win the next election, can you confirm right now that a Liberal government would cut the budget in the Premier's office prop, office budget? Well, what I can tell you, and certainly uh, I won't be the leader at that point in time, but what I can tell you, Mike, is we're going to pay attention first and foremost to critical issues like the overdose crisis in British Columbia. So um, it is about priorities, and our priority would be to do well, the things that are going to make a difference. Well, okay, but if you're saying that... Horgan has increased his office budget by 60%. Why would you not commit to cutting it? Well, as I said, we'll certainly look at uh, making sure that the budget reflects what's necessary. Do I think it needed a 30% increase in this year? No, I don't. And that would be something that certainly uh, would be one of the first things we look at. Okay, speaking to Shirley Bond, interim leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, another point that you have raised is uh, the PNE uh, struggling and asking for funding from the provincial government. The government gave them a million dollars, but they say they need a lot more than that. I had John Horgan on the show here a few days ago talking about this issue. You're going to hear him here kind of pass the buck to the city of Vancouver on this. I want to play this for you and get your thoughts on it. Here's the Premier. They are getting a significant amount of funding, and they have... Uh, not as much as they need. At, well, the... the the city of Vancouver is responsible for the PE, and uh, I, I would like to see what the plan is in Vancouver uh, rather than just turning to Victoria and saying, How do we solve these problems? And I, I know how uh, iconic the PE and Playland is to uh, not just the lower mainland, but the whole province. Uh, we, the, the agricultural components, particularly, are, are, are really a concern to me. We want to make sure that the, the notion of the land and animals and food and all of the things that go with not just not just mini donuts, but all of the things that you can learn as, as a youth, as a child, uh, going through the P&E. We want to make sure those programs continue. And there are ways to do that without just dropping a block of money on the table. Okay, so he cares about the animals and the kids and the mini donuts, but I guess doesn't want to put a lot, a lot of money into it. He wants Vancouver to, do, to uh, come to the rescue here. Shirley Bond, what do you think of that? Well, you asked about themes throughout the session. Well, that would be a great example of the theme. It's look everywhere else but in the mirror. Uh, Who else can fix this? You know, the Premier announced a program which he said was designed around the PNE. What do we then find out? That, in fact, they don't qualify as as a fair or as an event. 
the minister contradicted him and said, yes, they did. Again, it is the quintessential uh, definition of botching. He designed a program and said that it was to save the PNE. The PNE needs $8 million. This government needs to look in the mirror, get their act together, and figure out how we're going to save some of those iconic uh, heritage uh, attractions across British Columbia. And they've simply continued to blunder and yeah. mess up. What do you think about government spending on polling and advertising here, especially before the last election, which was called during the, the pandemic? Like, I thought it was interesting that the opposition got some documents obtained through Freedom of Information that showed the government direct awarded a, a polling contract to a company called Strategic Communications. They got some NDP links um, to do some polling right before the election. Do you think that showed that you know, the, the fix was in. They were always going to call a snap election there in the middle of the pandemic. They were polling about it before. Well, it simply, I spent a long time in, uh, in estimates talking to the Premier about this, and his answer simply wasn't credible. You know, they were polling regularly prior to the decision to call a snap election, and in fact, those results were delivered to Cabinet. So I have asked uh, to see the questions on the, the, on, that the polls offered. Uh, mm. The Premier has said he will look at doing that, but of course, they were polling. They were looking at, and the one thing that's uh, fairly astounding is that, you know, the, the Premier talks about following the advice of Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, in every single matter, which is an important thing. Having said that, the one person that he didn't apparently talk to, uh, talk to about whether it was wise to call an election during a pandemic was the public health officer. So they had polling. He didn't talk to uh, the person who had been guiding the, the pandemic response in British Columbia and tried to suggest that overnight he decided on a, uh, on a, pandemic snap election we all know what the premier wanted he took a political advantage to get a majority government that's what he did and i think that polling did make a difference and i think it helped shape that decision i think the premier needs to release those questions and be clear with british columbians that that helped to shape his decision okay every time i hear a political controversy over spending on polling or advertising it's kind of like groundhog day because it just goes on over and over again uh, I mean, you guys did it too. I mean, when the Liberals are in power, you guys did the same thing. Right? Oh, well, we certainly, you know, polling and advertising is part of the, the, the process in government, and no one's denying that. What I am pointing out is that this is a premier that is trying to tell British Columbians that daily polling prior to a snap election didn't influence this decision. That's just not a credible uh-huh. answer. And, you know, it's up to the premier to stand up, and he made the decision to call the election. He needs to wear that, and he needs to be uh, well, honest with British Columbia. Well, didn't he, didn't he say that the polling was around public uh, responses to the COVID crisis and the government's handling of it and public priorities around COVID? I mean, it's a public health emergency, right? So that's what he's saying, what the polling was about, not, not you know, election, electioneering or election strategy, right? Well, let's be clear, though. The reason he called the pandemic was because he believed that there was a positive reaction, and polling would have pointed that out. So, of course, it was about... Uh, it was about res- response to the pandemic. But all of that helped shape the thinking about whether winning a majority government was possible. The other issue, of course, was the bill around uh, youth stabilization and mental health. I had this discussion yeah. with him yesterday. No work has been done. And that's one of the reasons he said he called the election. So, you know, again, it's just, you know, stand up, take responsibility for the fact you called the election and be honest with British Columbians about what helped to shape that decision. Okay, last question for you. The, your party, the Liberal Party, hired some consultants to do a post-mortem of the last mm-hmm. election campaign, which was pretty basically disastrous for the Liberals. And the, the report uh, pointed a lot of fingers, but included 
uh, some criticism of former party leader Andrew Wilkinson. Um, said he was stilted, combative, and uncomfortable. Do you agree with that? those findings? Well, first of all, you know, Andrew contributed a great deal uh, on behalf of uh, the party and, and did, did a, a, an important job. You know, you know, Mike, the report also points out that a snap pandemic election, and we also learned in estimates this week that there was a lot of thinking about whether that was winnable for the, uh, the NDP. Uh, you know, the report was an important thing. We looked back, we looked at all of the issues uh, that, that caused uh, the outcome. And the good thing is we're about uh, to launch a significant leadership campaign. That report will obviously uh, be the, the, the foundation for changes that we make. Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the show. You heard my conversation there with interim liberal leader Shirley Bond taking a lot of cracks at the NDP government. Let's get the NDP response now. My guest is NDP Cabinet Minister Ravi Kalan, BC's Minister of Jobs and Economic Recovery. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thank you for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's start with uh, her complaint about the growth of the Premier's office budget. This came up in estimates this week, and she says that the the budget for Horgan's office has gone up 63% since he came into office. He's hired a ton more staff. What is up with that? That sounds like a huge increase. Well, uh, the Premier was pretty straightforward with her in, uh, in the exchange that uh, I think you played earlier as well, which is we hired staff so that we have the capacity to support the public through uh, what is one of the most challenging times that the province has ever faced. Uh, you know, we're not talking about, you know, spending money on yoga on our bridge here. We're talking about supporting people through a pandemic. And, uh, and so the Premier was pretty straightforward with the response to, uh, to the leader of the opposition uh, during estimates. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, quite frankly, this is what the people want. People want to ensure that we have the capacity to do the things that we need to do to ensure that we can navigate these difficult times. Okay, I had um, Kevin Falcon on the show yesterday, Minister, who, of course, is the front runner to become the permanent leader of the Liberal Party here. And we talked about this uh, bloated office staff, as he called it, in, in Horgan's office. And I just asked him straight up, if if he becomes the Liberal leader and then he becomes Premier, would he, would he fire a bunch of these office staffers and shrink the size of the office? Here's what he told me. I'll play it for you and get your thoughts. Premier Horgan's office budget has gone up 30%. 30%. He, just part of that is he's got 10 staffers earning 150 grand a piece, uh, a piece, excuse me, doing, you know, some sort of policy shuffling paper all around the place. Okay, so 30 seconds here. If you become premier, you would reduce the budget in the premier's office, right? You're damn right I would. Those people okay. would be marched out of there in the first few minutes. Okay, damn right. He'd cut the budget. He'd march people out of there, out of that office there in the Premier's office. What do you think of that? Well, you know, first off, uh, I'll just say that you mentioned the postpartum uh, or post-mortem report <laughs> that BC Liberals did. The headline for the report could have said, yesterday's party, yesterday's ideas, and, and quite frankly, Kevin is uh, yesterday's leader. I mean, all they do is continually recycle the same people over and over again. And so, you know, uh, you know, maybe I'm a little cynical, but given his record of when he was uh, Minister of Finance and the spending that they did, uh, I, I'm going to call BS on that one. Okay, you don't sound very worried about him becoming the Liberal leader. Well, it's it's a coronation. I think everyone knows that uh, he's leader. I don't understand why I don't just uh, name him now so that we can get <laughs> on with it. But, you know, if the B.C. Liberals want to shake their 16 years of 
cuts to uh, the important services of British Columbia and, and all the tax cuts they gave to the wealthy, then, hey, you know what, um, th- that's their call. But uh, if, they, you know, if they are looking for something new, that's definitely not with Kevin Polkin. Okay, Shirley Bond was also very critical here this morning of the amount of money your government spent on polling and advertising right before last year's election. So there was 95000 bucks spent to hire a polling company called Strategic Communications, which has got links to the NDP. They've donated nearly $40,000 to the NDP right before the election. I mean, isn't that proof that, you know, the election was pretty much being carefully planned for a long time before it was called? Well, uh, Mike, uh, as you've highlighted, uh, governments of all stripes do polling. Um, and this is not, uh, you know, this is not breaking news. This is not something that's brand new. Even Shirley couldn't uh, come around to admitting that they did a ton of polling. Uh, they did a ton of advertisements. That's a regular thing that governments do. Uh, and uh, quite frankly, they spent the entire session trying to uh, talk about an election that happened seven, eight months ago when we were focused on the challenges people are facing right now in the middle of a pandemic. And that's okay. the real difference between us. Minister, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Take care. Okay, okay. Ravi Kalon there, BC's Minister of Jobs and Economic Recovery. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the Vancouver School Board now canceling honors, math, and science programs in Vancouver high schools. These accelerated programs were aimed at gifted kids, kids who were totally into math and science. The school board, though, saying that they want more equity in the school system. These programs are being wound down. Have a listen to this report now from Global News and reporter Jordan Armstrong. They made this decision without talking to any students. We asked some very smart Eric Hamber secondary students to give the Vancouver School Board a letter grade. For transparency, here's what they said. Anywhere from an F to an F. Letter grades are being phased out, so I can't actually do that. Well, I'd give them an F, except Fs have been phased out. So I'm going to give them an I for incomplete, for failing to consult with students and teachers. They're upset the VSB is doing away with the last of its honors programs, which are accelerated courses in math and science for students in grades 8 through 10. 16-year-old Stephen Kosar says he wasn't a great student back in elementary school. He found it boring but the honors courses gave him the challenge he needed. And that's such an important aspect for me, to be actually challenged by something, to do something actually interesting is really important. Parents are troubled by the timing of the VSB's decision. Rebecca DL's grade 7 daughter found out the programs were being scrapped only after studying for and taking the placement exam. Um, And had to be told by her teacher that same day that the the class was going to be cancelled. Um, So she came home that day, she was upset. The honors programs are the reason Roger Tam's son chose to attend Eric Hamber. It's thrown everything into disarray a bit. You know, we're we're not really sure how, how how to plan around this. The VSB believes the programs no longer fit with its equity and inclusion goals. And on social media, there is some agreement. But the board wasn't eager to explain its decision. At first, they declined our interview request and sent an email attributed to no one in particular. 24 hours later, they had this to say. The learning opportunities that were available because of these honors classes continue to exist. For example, she says a grade 8 student excelling in math could choose to take grade 9 math in the second semester. Kosar thinks this is all about money, and he feels shortchanged. They want to 
cut things back because it's cheaper for them because they are losing a lot of money and it's just a sinkhole. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Okay, good report there by Global News reporter Jordan Armstrong. I like how we got a lot of the kids' voices involved there. Okay, let's discuss this now with the Vancouver School Board uh, cutting these honors programs in math and science now. My guest is Tara Hool. Tara is an education advocate. She has campaigned for an improved school curriculum in BC, especially in mathematics. And I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Tara, thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me back, Mike. Okay, Tara, what do you think about this decision by the Vancouver School Board? I guess in some ways this is not a surprise. They had been looking to, to scrap these programs for a while. But your thoughts on this decision? Right. Well, um, first of all, just to answer your question um, in terms of what I think about it, it's, it's, just, it's, it's, it's a completely backwards decision that will only end up hurting the kids that uh, usually get these supports, you know, at the universe, or sorry, at the high school level. Um, but really, I'd like to just go back and just disc- uh, say, like, this whole process actually just began um, when the ministry invited the BCTF to help draft a new curriculum about eight or uh, eight years or so ago. Um, some of the re- uh, various recommendations that they drafted for the BCTF to review was, um, you know, one of these that um, the VSB has now carried for, um, in in terms of you know, canceling some of these uh, math programs. Um, I was invited by our local school district to participate when math curricular reform was discussed all those years ago. And during the course of this discussion, members of the BCTF committee said that they wanted to phase out the dual math stream at the high school for the same uh, reasons um, which the VSP followed through on um, just recently. Um, so, like this word solid description, given how teachers should now be able to provide different types of instruction to different levels of kids in the same classroom, is just nuts. And it's exactly why the high school math teachers at that time pushed back hard against this recommendation five years ago. So um, it's, just, it's just not about bad practice anymore. It's absolute lunacy running the ship. And it's throwing the teachers under the bus. It's problem learning for our kids. And every time parents raise a concern about this type of garbage, they're labeled a racist. So I, I really have very strong opinions on this because we're doing the kids that need the support the most a real huge disservice. Okay, what kind of kids go are go into these programs typically? I mean, are they typically kids who are like gifted kids? Are they kids who are like totally into math and science and science and this is what they want to do with their careers? Or are they kids who have got pushy parents and want them to succeed and push them into these programs or they don't want to be in them? I mean, in your experience, like what kind of kid goes into one of these honor math and science programs? Right. Well, it could be it could be um, a whole bevy of kids as you've described. Or it could be ones that just love math in general. Um, But the beauty of public school, Mike, what we're supposed to offer is opportunities for all kids, um, as many opportunities as available, but especially those that may not be getting, uh, have access maybe to tutoring at the earlier years um, that maybe some of their classmates have. Like the, you know, the, the, the ground level for all kids is the classroom in terms of being able to excel in an equal manner. And um, what we're, you know, some of the data that we're showing um, in terms of math performance in British Columbia over the last 20 years is that the equity gap is actually growing instead of getting smaller. And a lot of that stems from the fact that um, the curricula has weakened at the elementary level. And by doing that, their understanding of math has really gone down. So by the time they get to high school, um, maybe their math skills aren't as strong. So we really need to look at um, closing that gap first 
if you know in order to offer you know better math instruction for all kids so regardless of what type of kid that wants to you know maybe take calculus course what we what we should be offering instead is a stronger curriculum to all kids and enable them to you know take it if they want to or not Okay, it's interesting to hear some of the reaction to this decision. Like I'm looking online at, at uh, Andy Yen, for example, who's a professor at Simon Fraser University, saying that this honors program really enriched him and helped him to exceed. Right. And he ended up as a university professor. I'm seeing other lots of other people weighing in on it as well, saying that they got a lot out of this program. It helped them in their lives move ahead. And, uh, really satisfied their craving for a challenging curriculum. Looking at Matthew Matthew Bond on social media, who is a North Vancouver City Councillor, saying he came from a low-income family, um, likely would not have been able to afford university without scholarships, but he took these honors programs and it helped him to to succeed. Uh, you know, I mean, the the board is saying that they want more equity and they want more diversity, I guess, in in these programs. But I don't know. It sounds like some low income kids. Uh, it's it's available to low income kids too, right? Who could succeed? Yeah. Well, and any time that somebody makes a recommendation to change something, uh, what well, you need to ask them, where's your proof for that? Okay. Yeah, so if yeah. if this is where the VSP has, uh, it's it's overwhelmingly failed all in its duties. You know, to its students, to its teachers, and to its parents. It's not listening to what the kids want. It's not listening to what the parents want. It's not giving the public, you know, uh, you know, up, you know, like the, the excellent, you know, public system that we once had. And when we know that, you know, decades ago, our kids had more math abilities and a stronger sense, a grasp of math skills than they do today, we should be looking at enriching that rather than, you know, canceling the same programs which inspire kids that may not have the, you know, the ability or the access to outside, you know, like tutoring than some of the other kids do in order to get ahead. I mean, that is the whole point of public education. This is one of the things that occurred to me as well. Like, not every kid will come from a family that can afford to hire a tutor for a kid or have access to tutoring services, and, and maybe these programs would be attractive to them for for that reason. The other thing that, occur- that I wondered about was, could this possibly drive some kids into private school? Like, if you don't have access to these honors programs and you want a more challenging curriculum, do you say, well... Well, forget it. I'm going to go into. I'm, I'm going to put my kid in a private school. Absolutely. The yeah. one thing that these policymakers fail to acknowledge is that parents will do whatever it takes for their child, nonstop. Yeah. And so, you know, even kids that you know might be coming from disadvantaged neighborhoods, those parents will work two, three jobs. I have talked to plenty of those parents just so their kid can maybe attend an independent school, which they know they will receive some semblance of, you know, a rigorous curriculum, which they would not be getting in regular public school. So why are we not allowing just to have a more rigorous, you know, public education system instead of seeing the brain drain leave, which we have seen in this province, where we have the lowest enrollment figures in this province, uh, you know, versus other provinces per capita, because everyone's sending their kids off to independent schools and private schools in British Columbia. This is something that the province really needs to take a look at. Okay, Tara, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time, Mike. All right, let's talk about the nice weather and getting outside to enjoy it now. The weekend looking awesome here. Father's Day is this Sunday. Don't forget about Dad. Looking like a perfect day for a Father's Day barbecue warm and sunny okay this is awesome but 
What about those creepy crawlies that can spoil the party? I'm talking ants. I'm talking wasps. I'm talking mosquitoes and house flies. Let's talk to the best guest on this topic, Mike Laundry, owner of Westside Pest Control. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Mike. Hey, thank you. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for coming on once again. Mike, let's start with um, maybe one of the most common ones if you're out on the patio or the back deck or your yard or something, and that's the wasps buzzing around, especially if you got a picnic going on, right? Yeah, absolutely. Wasps are definitely starting to come out now. You'll see them a lot in the next coming days as the weather gets really hot. Um, there's a few different different kinds of wasps. The most common is the yellow jacket. This is the one that most people see and uh, um, is the most aggressive as well. So uh, part of part of uh, dealing with wasps is uh, being able to identify them. Um, and uh, the yellow jacket is the most common. The other one that people see a lot of is the umbrella wasps and they look really similar the difference being yellow jackets kind of zip back and forth whereas umbrella wasps sort of hover they've got these long dangly legs they look quite menacing but their sting in terms of its intensity is actually a fraction of a yellow jacket they build these little open face comb looking nests um, and there's usually a number of them Uh, they're often on the south side of a south side of a house or a, a structure you'll see a few of these combs they're pretty small a lot of them can be knocked down if you get them early early on but mm. uh, if you have lots where they start to grow then um, uh, you're going to want to use more than just a broom okay i usually deal with these if we're having a barbecue outside we're eating outside and there's a lot of wasps buzzing around i will typically try to deal with it with the extreme prejudice with one of those um electric uh, wasp zappers you can get at the hardware store which is, yeah. you know, I mean, kind of, there's, it's, I guess it's kind of cruel a little bit, but uh, they're effective, man. They're effective. So do you prefer, do you, Mike, do you prefer the standalone unit or, or, or do you like swatting them with the, with the tennis racket? Well, I got the tennis racket one. How does the standalone one yeah. work? Well, some of the standalone ones work where they actually will attract the insect. Some of them are, are, are electronic where they, where they zap them. We don't see as many of those these days but you can get uh you can get light traps um and this is more for other insects but they can be used for for, for wasps although they're not going to be that interested in them it's more for for flies those standalone traps there's a, there's a light and and a glue board the, the insects get uh, attracted to the light and stuck on the glue board when it comes to wasps the best thing and you can buy these for literally less than 10 bucks from any hardware store most hardware store stores are wasp pheromone traps they they oh. there's a few different brands they, they come in it's usually in a, in a clear plastic bag there's a pheromone inside so there's no toxic or harmful chemicals you cut a little hole in the top add some water use a piece of string or, or or a zip tie hang it up somewhere in the yard not where you want the wasps to, to be so if you're you know you're going to be barbecuing and having them on, on the patio Put one of these traps about 20 feet away from the patio, which will keep them away from the food. Okay, that's great. I'm, I might try that one for sure. Okay, Mike, what about, um, I've seen those fake-looking uh, wasp nests. You know, it looks like one of those paper wasp nests, and you hang it up like a bag. You know you know those things I mean? You hang it up, and, and that apparently scares them away or something? Is are those things, Do those things work? You know what? Like, I, I would... Uh, I, I would buy one of the one of the pheromone traps if you if yeah. you really can you know if if you really want to do that just 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 get a paper bag um, 
so the idea behind those traps is that is that wasps are territorial and right. um, uh, and that you know one nest doesn't mean another nest. I've been to homes before where there's three nests located on one house, some within 15 feet from another nest. So if a real wasp nest doesn't deter another wasp from building a nest, I don't see why a, a fake bag is going to do much better. <laughs> Yeah, I've never had much success with those. I guess they're kind of like a wasp scarecrow idea, but it, I don't know. It hasn't really worked that much for me. Yeah, yeah um, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend money on that. Okay. What about ants? Like, I know you get a lot of calls for people who got ant infestations. Does that get worse at this time of year? Uh, yeah, it's, it's probably it's probably about at its at its peak now. There's a lot more carpenter ants in the in in the spring, um, and it's not that the carpenter ants aren't still active. But carpenter ants can be active indoors in the spring. As we get into the summer, we start seeing a lot more pavement ants. Um, these are the ants that uh, uh, typically live underneath sideway, or, uh, sidewalks, driveways, sometimes right underneath the foundation of the house, especially if you're lab on grade uh, style of house uh, like a lot of houses in Richmond for example um, and for these guys you can bait them early 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 on like literally if you're lucky enough to catch them in the first one or two days where they're crawling in from the patio into the kitchen if you get some bait down um, and you can make bait your yourself but I would reckon again it's just going to be a few dollars from the from the hardware store um, anything with boric acid in it um, uh, and apply the baits near the door frames, you might get lucky. Mm. Otherwise, um, you're, what you're going to want to do if they're, if they're coming in um, is the next step would be soap and water in a, in, in a spray bottle, spray around the, the area where the ants are coming in. They're always dragging their butts and leaving pheromones to tell the other ants where to go. So if you can wipe those pheromones clean, the ants may not come back. Okay, uh, Mike, producer Tim French here has got a problem with moths. Moths in his house, even though he's got the doors closed, he's got his window screens up, he's got moths in his place. You got any advice for him real quick? Uh, so they're pro- if, if there's a number of them, the most common kinds of moths in a, in, in a home are usually pantry moths. Uh, the secondary would be case-making or clothing moths, uh, which yeah. are two different types but are, are somewhat similar. Um, the, for, the, for the pantry moths, those, I mean, all moths are, are, are a pain to get to get rid of. There isn't sort of a, you know, the pest control guy or just shows up or you go to the hardware store. Um, with the pantry moths, you need to remove all of the uh, um, perishable food items that they might be getting into in the... Mm in the cupboard they'll get into cereal boxes and boxes of crackers and spices and all of that kind of stuff um so you really need to be thorough and going through everything eliminating it if there's something that you just you know some really nice spices that you don't want to get rid of leave them in the freezer for, for a couple of weeks to hopefully kill off some of the some of the larvae um, Ugh. but Ugh. Uh, the thing is is the moths are going to be eating the the larvae are, are what's eating the eating the food or eating the carpet or eating the the clothes, the actual adult moths—they're not feeding on any of that, on any of that stuff. So uh, it's important to get to the get to the source and eliminate the source to eliminate uh, the moths in the long term. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Talking about summer pests with Mike Laundry, West Side Pest Control. Phone lines are open to him, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Right to your calls here, Carrie in Coquitlam. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Hi there. Hi. I have, uh, it, it doesn't have anything to do with outdoor bugs, but a friend of mine has bed bugs. Bed bugs, oh. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I don't go over there. It's just, it drives me crazy. She's called pest control twice. Yeah. Um, they've charged yeah. her a sum of money that's ridiculous both times, and they're still there. Oh, man. Mike, bed bugs. Uh, so, Carrie, uh, I'm sorry that for your, for, for your friend, they can be a very, a very frustrating pest, and uh, it's a long, it's a long process uh, and quite an, an involved process. Um, so we used to do them and haven't for 10 years when I decided to hire my first, uh, my first staff member 10, 10 years ago at that time. Um, we, we stopped doing bed bug services altogether because um, it, it's, it is such, it is such a, a difficult process at the time. There wasn't a lot of good approved and safe products here to successfully el- eliminate them, but there are some better ones now um, in combination with, with, with heat treatments as well as some really, really good vacuum treatments. So um, I would have your friend maybe, maybe phone around to, uh, to a, few other, a few other companies because not everyone's going to gouge you and there's definitely, there's definitely re- results possible. Okay, that's a tough one for sure. I had a friend who went through that went through that thing, and it sounded like a, a nightmare. Let's go to Brent in Victoria. Hey, Brent. How's it going? Good. Go ahead. Good. Yeah, I have a question on how do you get rid of uh, silverfish? Uh, I moved into an older building in Victoria here, and uh, first thing I saw was a little squiggly old thing that booting across on the floor, and I saw one on the ceiling in the kitchen. I thought, oh, gee, so I just got some raid, and I sprayed it, and it no sucker fell right on top of the fridge. I scooped it up, but I don't like using toxic stuff too much. Um, it hurts, yeah. you know, bad, right? So I just want sure. to find the, okay. the best uh, remedy. Mike. Sure. Um, yeah, so, I mean, silverfish are one of those pests that you're never going to eliminate them 100%, especially if you're in an older building and it's a multi-unit building. They have been living for 300-plus million years in climates <laughs> just like ours long before we were here and they're going to be here long long after us but what they need are higher levels of moisture and humidity so one of the best non-toxic things you can do to keep the level of silverfish down is to is to use your bathroom fan as much as you can all the time in in fact if the noise doesn't bother you and you don't wear the motor out and um uh, and use a dehumidifier and just kind of uh, take that through the through the house into the different rooms where there are issues. Usually, it's bathrooms and kitchens, laundry rooms, uh, the places with more moisture. Rotate it through those areas. Uh, and the other thing that you can do as well, they like they like uh, uh, paper cellulose as well as adhesives. So uh, uh, store bought glue boards um, that are insect monitors or are intended for catching mice are actually a really good thing to put behind furniture. Um, and uh, and keep the silverfish population down. Okay, Brent, good luck with that one. Let's go to Hugh on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Hugh. Yeah, morning, boys. Hi. Um, in regards to morning. your uh, pantry moths, I had a huge infestation. It was just unbelievable. Tried everything. 
So I opened up a bag of bay leaves, and I had them had in two, I haven't had them for two years now. Have you heard of that, Mike? Huh, interesting. Mike? Yeah, I've actually heard of bay leaves being used for a number of, of different insects. And um, uh, customers have commented to me on, on various amounts of success with them, but uh, I've never heard of 100% er- eradication. I, I, I assume that you, you took some, some other measures and bay leaves were, were one, uh, one, one tool in the toolbox, or was that the, uh, was that the, the entire treatment? Did you, what else did you do, Hugh? You still there? Okay. And it didn't work, so I said, to heck with that. I just cut this large bag of Baileys, and seriously, I'm the one guy you're listening to that's got rid of them. <laughs> okay, okay. Fantastic. Interesting. Okay, well, don't, don't, don't tell all of our listeners. I, I, I still want some customers, please. <laughs> okay. Okay, Hugh, thank you for that. That's a, a good tip. Let's go to Louise in Abbotsford. Hi, Louise. There. Hi. Um, I live in an apartment, and I'm having trouble with these absolute minute red ants. They're honestly about the size of a, a pinhead. And they like to be in the kitchen, and if you leave a speck of food on the counter, they swarm. Now, mm. I've been using a mixture of borax and sugar in hot water on uh, cotton balls. And mm. they come, and I guess they like the sugar, eat the borax, and, but it doesn't get rid of them. Have you heard of what these things mm. are? Okay, Mike. So, are there? I'm, I'm guessing what you're probably dealing with are are fair ants, and fair ants are, are really, really tiny. And I would actually, the word I would use to describe them is 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 delicate. Um, they're almost transparent. If you're looking at one on the floor and you're standing up, you can almost not see it on the ground, but below you, um, they're quite a common ant to have. Not super common, but relatively common in in multi-residential buildings and. Uh, thing about these ants is they're extremely smart so if you start to um if you start to to never 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 spray them if you if you spray them they will start budding and going into reproductive overdrive which means they're going to create more queens and those queens are going to go to new places which is the next unit over from you and the next unit over from them and so on um the other thing with the with the any any baits you apply sorry the, the truck driving past um, with any bait that you apply, you do want to ensure that um, you're you're using a very low concentration of of borax. I would water it down as much as possible. Again, because these ants are really intelligent, if you're killing them off too quickly, they're going to wise up to that and that start that budding process. So it may oh. be that either adjacent units have them or they've caught on to what you're doing and uh and they're reproducing more quickly okay louise good luck with that mike it's always great to have you on here we could fill the whole show with calls to you and i look forward to having you on again what's your website if people want more information about your company there westsidepest.com mike thanks for coming on today thank you mike for most of us crime is something we see on the news we never think it could happen to us until it does Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.